That sound's gonna be obnoxious. Okay, well, guys, this is Rish Outfield, and this is the Rish Outcast. But it's raining, and I, I can hear the wipers, and I, I just maybe this isn't the best time to record because every time you hear the sound, it makes a, a, a squeak and. Experience has told me that it's way louder on the microphone than it is than it is to my ears. Okay, so briefly, uh, I'm going to run Father's Day in August in this episode. I just I'm recording this in April, and there was a three-week stretch when I didn't put out any episodes. Part of that was because I did a Dune Steep episode where I recorded the story, I edited the story, I put music under the story, I met with Big Anklevich, recorded that conversation and edited that, and it, it just frankly was, it was the amount of work I would do in three episodes of the Rish Outcast. But when I looked at, you know, how long it had been since I had posted a Rish Outcast episode, I was shocked because I tried to get them out one a, one a week, and yeah, I would be lucky to have two episodes in April, I think. So this should be maybe June. And I'm just, I just decided that I would do all three Praised and Pickle Days carnival stories on the show. Maybe in a row, maybe not in a row. But this is the third one, Father's Day in August. And this one was written later, five years after the first two. And... It tries to be more complicated. It's, it's a long story, and we can talk afterward about that it was at one time even longer. But I didn't remember it as well as I remembered the other two, because the other two, in like 2003, 2004, I actually sat down and recorded and burned onto a CD. And I remember I would do road trips a lot. I would go to Vegas when my grandma was still alive, or I would go down to Oceanside which was about 100 miles, and I would need stuff to listen to. And so I burned myself recording some of these stories, and that taught me a lot about things that I felt like worked and didn't work. In the same way as I always tell you, you read your story aloud. You'll pick up on weaknesses, probably pick up on strengths that, that you weren't aware. Yeah, maybe not. You probably pick up on weaknesses or moments that are a little bit vague, especially if, you know, you can forget about the stories like I do. But in sitting down in 2020 and recording this, I was surprised by a couple of moments I had forgotten about. And there was one particularly rough bit where I was just like, oh, wow, I wonder if I would write that today. So there, there's a little bit of a content warning if you want to, um, if you want to take that under advisement. So okay, as I said, third story in this series. They all take place at the same time, on the same day, and I don't know if you'll enjoy it or not. If not, uh, I'll probably already have recorded the third story and an episode for it by the time you hear this. So you're just helpless. Helpless like a baby in my arms. I'll talk to you soon. Father's Day in August. 
Ah, pickle days. Growing up in the 70s, but without a disco or an outlet for drugs, there wasn't a whole lot to do summers in Preston, Utah. There was bike riding, scouts, television, reading, Mormon activities. Church basketball was very popular. Going to whatever was playing at the Fruish and fishing up the canyon. And in August, there was the Pickle Days celebration, which went for a whole week and included fireworks, bands in the park, a parade, art shows, and a surprisingly large-scale carnival, complete with rides and attractions. It had been about 15 years since I had gone to the carnival, what with moving away for nearly a decade for high school, college, and work. But when I went back, in the summer of 1992, this time with my son Lewis by my side, it felt as if no time had passed. It all looked pretty much like it always had. The rides might have been the same, too. I, I couldn't remember. Seriously, they, they could well have been giving out prizes with Farrah Fawcett or Sean Cassidy on them, instead of Sharon Stone or Kirk Cobain. Or the have-a-nice-day smile, rather than Bart Simpson and his cartoon family. The smells were what felt most familiar. On the positive side, popcorn, nachos, cotton candy. You might not think cotton candy has a smell, but the machines sure do. Uh, and cigarettes, grease, and body odor on the bad. Everything reminded me of the good times I'd once had there with my family and friends. But there was so much on my mind nowadays, and so many problems in my life, that I kept feeling guilty for enjoying myself with my son at the summer carnival. I looked down at Lou and smiled, hoping he was loving it like I had at his age. Lou was eight that year, and while he was no bigger than the last time I'd seen him, he sure was acting differently. He seemed anxious, over-energized, almost frantic, to the point where I asked him, twice, if he had to go to the bathroom. I hadn't been around Lou much lately, but I sure didn't remember him that way before. Maybe he'd been somewhat antsy and a bit loud, but I had chalked that up to excitement at seeing me. Now his questions came fast and frequently. Was your favorite the zipper or the stroke inducer? Has anybody ever got thrown out of a ride, do you think? Do you think I'm tall enough to ride the crash test? What's a inducer? Before I could answer, he asked, Do you think the tilt-a-whirl is fixed by now? Should we check? When did they say they'd have it going? I didn't answer him, choosing to reflect on my problems instead. The first weight on my mind was the troubles I was having at work. I'd been there for almost eight years and was the head of the customer service department but our numbers were down, returns were up, and the workload seemed to increase every week. I had to let one member of my team, Kwame Umparo, go in May, but it hadn't raised our numbers as much as expected. The boss was breathing down my neck to fire another employee before September, or I'd probably lose my own job. Dad, I heard my son say, probably for the fifth time. I broke from my trance and said, what? Can we go on the pendulum, Dad? Please? I looked over. It was a crescent-shaped ride that swung back and forth like a pendulum and reminded me of a ride we used to frequent at Lagoon, Utah's only amusement park. Felt something I couldn't remember anymore. Sure, I said. 
we got in line, and I was a million miles away again. While my job worries were a headache, I also had heartache. My mother's cancer had come back, and it looked pretty dire for her. She claimed it wasn't all that serious, but the last time I saw her she was too thin, and the light seemed to be fading from her eyes. And then there was Tracy. She and I had never had an ideal union, but our relationship train had derailed several stops back, and the conductor had gotten himself run over. When I looked at her now, I only saw resentment and judgment. When she looked at me now, I suppose she only saw apathy and infidelity. Yes, I had stepped out on our marriage with a girl from the office, but it had been during the worst time in our relationship, up to that point anyway, and it was me who confessed it and vowed to put it behind us. Honestly, I hadn't been in love with Tracy in years. She became increasingly distant, increasingly hostile, and the kind of constantly nagging wife the stand-up comics describe with feverish gusto. Still, I won't pass the buck and say she drove me to stray. I made that choice on my own, and I had chosen to come back, to try and give it another go, and all that entails. But it was over now, and divorce was on the horizon. All that remained was the paperwork, left undone because of stress and inconvenience, not from any real effort or desire to maintain the marriage. Lou told me to move up in the line, practically dragging me as another two dozen riders loaded up the pendulum to make up for those who just got off. I wouldn't say that I was a neglectful father, but I hadn't spent as much time with Lou as I would have liked. Over the last few months, I saw him less and less, and I couldn't remember the last time we had gone out together, just the two of us. Maybe we never had. Tracy had been complaining about Lou's hyperactivity, wanting to put him on medication, claiming it was a chemical imbalance rather than just the energy surplus of childhood. Growing up when I did, I felt like drugs were more of a problem than a solution. And what if it changed his personality, or inhibited his creativity, or or damaged his brain or something. I got into a lot of mischief as a kid, and I'd just grown out of it. I turned out just fine without pharmaceuticals. But as I watched Lewis, I started to see what it was that had gotten his mother so worked up about. The boy appeared to have boundless energy. Everything seemed to make him excited. He spoke a mile a minute, bouncing from one subject to the next, like one of the Mario brothers. First, he went on animatedly about this movie, The Candyman, he saw at a friend's house, and how the bad guy was a ghost, but not really, and although he was scary, you felt sorry for him, too, and something about a toilet. Then he started in on how soccer was so fun, but his team kept losing all their games, and whose fault it was, and why did I miss his last game when it was right by my apartment? He was sounding less and less like my son, and more like a quiz show host with each minute I spent with him. Dad? What does vulva mean? Why do some apples start out green and then turn red, and some always stay green? Can a person live without a stomach? How come men go bald but women don't? The kid never hit bottom. To be frank, I'd suspected Tracy was just lazy, easily irritated, too picky, all the things she had been the last year of our marriage. 
But after only three hours, Lou's behavior was starting to drain on me. Dad, I need a favor, he announced, with absolutely no preamble. Not till you're twenty-one, I said instantly. Either it wasn't funny, or he didn't get it, because he scowled and made his request anyway. I don't want to take piano lessons anymore. I could understand. He was supposed to practice every morning before he turned on the television. For some crazy amount of time, like forty-five minutes. Apparently, Tracy was under the impression we had a daughter. Your mother thinks it builds character, I said, subtly making her the bad guy. I hate it, though, he proclaimed to the world. I hate it more than I ever hated anything in my entire life. That's a mighty long stretch of years, I said. Please, can I stop taking piano lessons? No. He made a hurt sound. It was kind of cute, but I didn't want him to know he amused me. What? I asked. Do you hate me now? No, he said, though I thought he might be tempted to say he did. But I hate piano lessons. Lou would hold my hand, and then put his hands in his pockets, then hold my other hand, then stick a finger up his nose, then hold his own hands, then start again. I tried not to smile at a devilish idea. Tell you what, you name me the capital of Lebanon, and you can quit piano lessons. What's Lebanon? Lou asked, cheerlessly. Something tells me the answer is going to be wrong. Come on, that's too hard. Sorry. He paused, squinting in the summer sun. Is it Russia? Nope, I said with a smile, and it occurred to me how much trouble I'd be in if he had gotten it right. Why, Tracy might even divorce me. There wasn't much of a line for the tilt-a-whirl, since it had been shut down most of the day. I told Lou it was so they could pull out an old lady that was sucked into the gears, which he swallowed until the carny who seated us told him otherwise. The old dude then glared at me, like I had out-psychoed the dead from The Shining. The tilt-a-whirl made me a bit queasy, but Lou wanted to ride it. Due to the short line, we were on and off in fifteen minutes, and beelining for the pendulum. I put my arm around my son, feeling the sunshine on my neck and the refreshing breeze in my hair, and tried, if I could, to just savor the moment. Unable to stay quiet even for the majesty of God's nicest summer day, Lou found new topics of conversation with the ease of a rock star finding company for the night. Yesterday, Mom got mad at me because I said fart, he sighed. Fart's not a swear word. No, but it's kind of a bad word. She said I'm not allowed to say it anymore. The poor kid. It was the Great Depression all over again. Sorry. She doesn't want me to say crap anymore, either. Same reason? Yeah, he moaned. It's not fair. Peter Danielson can say anything he wants to. His mom doesn't care. Crap, that's too bad, I said, and he laughed. I was glad Lou wasn't old enough yet to realize I didn't have all the answers, and I wasn't sure what to tell him. Tracy had become since my dalliance with Corinne Klein, very critical of the example I was to our son, 
the words I used, the activities I enjoyed, the attitudes I espoused. Finally, I told him, Grandma used to swear all the time, you know? Really? Like a merchant marine. What's that? You know, like Popeye or Donald Duck. He looked at me with zero comprehension. Anyway, I grew up thinking that foul language was no big deal. But it is, to a lot of people. I took his hand again. I know sometimes I say things I shouldn't. But let's both try and control our tongues, okay? Okay. I gave his hand a squeeze. I loved my boy. The pendulum was fun, but like many of these carnival rides, felt shoddily constructed and hastily put together. When we reached the apex of the ride's arc, my enjoyment was hindered by the fear that it could keep going, getting higher and higher until we were thrown out of our seats and into the air. When the ride started to die down again, though, I was able to fully appreciate the dropping sensation. It was exhilarating, quite unlike any feeling I'd experienced, except for going to Lagoon and riding the tidal... The tidal wave! That's what it had been. I took a happy breath and reached over to Muslu's hair. You having a good time, partner? His goofy smile, which was all I needed as an answer to my question, vaporized. My son looked at me with something I could only describe as horror. Whatever he thought I had said... I repeated myself, only louder. Ah, he whined. You don't want to go home already, do you? For some reason, that irked me, but I didn't let it show. Oh, just asking. Yeah, it's great, he said, his smile coming back. As we unloaded, I considered getting right back in line, like I had when I was twelve. One time, my cousins and I had boarded the tidal wave for about an hour, allowed to just stay in our seats while those who had to be elsewhere got on and got off around us. Those were different times. Magical times. And the only thing that had mattered was getting the most joy out of the only real day that counted. That one. For a blissful minute, all my worries about Mom and work and Tracy and Lou had faded away and I was a kid again. Lou poked me in the side with his finger. You aren't really ready to leave, are you? Don't poke, I said. No, I'm fine. Just ready for a breather, maybe. He nodded, relieved. He'd looked forward to the Pickle Days carnival all summer, reminding me or pestering me at every turn. I hoped dear old Dad had something to do with that, and not just the junk food and attractions. We walked toward the concessions, the sounds of tinny stereo speakers melding with the screams from the rides and laughter from the spectators. I took it all in. The families, friends, and lovers standing in line and playing games. The odd crying child. Actually, I saw a lot of them that day, but figured it was the heat. But my real-life worries kept interrupting, moving across my brain like a to-do list. Last on that list was Lou. Tracy grumbled about his behavior problems, his refusal to sit still, his inability to focus on any one thing. I now understood that last one, as I've made abundantly clear. 
She called it a tension deficiency syndrome or something, and wanted to put him on dexedrine. That was an antipsychotic, from what she said, and since I would be paying for it one way or another, I was supposed to be behind her on this. Lou didn't know about any of these issues, except that Mom and Dad weren't together anymore. I figured he was smart enough to know where we were headed, but Tracy never mentioned the D-word, and when he asked, she told him, We'll see. It occurred to me that Tracy had used the old we'll see on me a time or two, especially when we were first dating. So what was I supposed to tell my boy? About any of it? My friend Pablo is adopted, he said, out of nowhere. I said nothing. I was listening, but not really. His mom and dad didn't ever tell him, but they're all, like, white and stuff, and he's Mexican or something. And they're not? No. So he was— Then why did they name him Pablo? He rolled his eyes at me. Grown-ups can be so stupid. Because he's adopted. Right. He figured it out by himself, and it, like, really bothered him. He beat up a girl in our class right before school let out. I grimaced. These were indeed different times. He beat up a girl? If I was adopted, would you tell me? Wait, your friend, Pablo, or your classmate, Pablo? My friend, Pablo. And he beat up a girl? Yes. If I was adopted, would you tell me? To have a conversation with my son was more dizzying than a go on the tilt-a-whirl. You were adopted, Louis, I told him. No, I wasn't. You were, actually. Your real name is Jorel. Your mother and I found you in a field one day. Nuh-uh. You were just a baby in a rocket ship. We couldn't believe it. Lou's frown became a smile as he caught the reference. Was I strong? Oh, yeah. You kept beating up the dog. We had to put you in a metal crib, but then you'd pull open the bars to get out. He giggled. Did I fly? Yep. You kept crashing into the walls. To get you to go to sleep, we'd have to use a kryptonite pacifier. But that would kill me. It was a little one. Did I used to set Grandma on fire with my x-ray vision? That made me think of my mom and her cancer. No, you never did that. Did I... Lou, you weren't adopted, I said, effectively ending the banter. I know. I wondered if he already understood about death. Did they talk about that in school? Maybe that was what church was for. Tracy used to be pretty religious. I wondered if she would start going again, now that we were split up. She might hook up with a righteous Mormon guy that never drank beer or iced tea, hunted his own food, and only believed in missionary position. How would I look compared to a patient, dedicated, aw shucks Mormon stepfather? Hey, Dad? Lou was talking to me again. Dad? I looked in his direction. Jorel is Superman's dad's name. His name is Kalel. Wasn't it Jorel? No. He sounded pretty sure of himself. Okay. We went on one more ride, the centrifuge, where we stood up and were spun so hard it felt we'd be lifted off our feet. 
Lewis whooped and cheered all the way through it, but I got sick to my stomach. I tried to hide my dizziness as we disembarked and made our way toward the Barkers and try-your-luck games. You thirsty? I asked. Want a Coke or something? I don't drink Coke anymore, Lou said gravely. Perfect. His mother must have gotten to him already. There were a lot of people in Utah County who had given up Coke because it was now God's will. Funny, I think that whole thing started around the time New Coke came out in the 80s. Is that right? I asked, trying to keep neutrality in my voice. All I needed was for Tracy to accuse me of trying to turn our son against her. Yeah, Mr. Budikofer was telling us. Mr. Who? A teacher. He teaches the other third grade, but we all had him for science. Anyway, he showed us that it rots your teeth by put— Let me guess. He put a tooth in a glass of Coke. No big shock. Mean-spirited teachers had been doing that since Copernicus's day. It was a bone. But yeah, in like a week, the bone was all evaporated. I felt like telling him the word wasn't evaporated— and that the same thing would happen in a glass of milk, orange juice, maybe even water. But he didn't let me. And then he told us that dead-body policemen put coke on the road where car accidents happen to wash the blood away. Dead-body policemen? I forget the word. Did you know that, Dad? I had to admit that I didn't. It always irritated me when adults tried to teach kids with scare tactics something I felt was related to the religion thing. But there wasn't much I could do about that. So instead of offering to buy him some other kind of drink, we walked away from the refreshment stand. Perhaps that was spiteful of me, but I had offered him a Coke, and he didn't want it. Regardless, a second later, he poked me in the arm with his surprisingly sharp fingers. Dad, can I get a funnel cake? I stepped out of poking range. What's that? I don't know, but there was a sign that said funnel cakes, and it sounds good, and they're only three dollars, so can we get one? Three dollars buys a meal at McDonald's. McDonald's sucks. Hey, people always say that. Tracy always said that. But I had some good times there over the years. I even worked at McDonald's when I was a kid. I told Lou that. So don't knock it. Sorry, McDonald's doesn't suck, but there's no McDonald's here, but there are funnel cakes, so can we get one instead? All very logical. So now it's we. I'll share some of mine, and if I don't like it, you can have it all. That's very generous of you, son. So can we get one? I wasn't actually tired, but I wanted to lie down anyway. Yes, just don't poke me. Sorry, Dad. You're the best. Can we go to McDonald's after? If you want. We got in line for concessions. It was all about lines here. Luckily, Lewis knew a way to make the time speed by. Did you really work at McDonald's? Yep, for about a year. And you were a kid? They let kids work at McDonald's? I was a teenager, I interrupted. That's like a kid, just with bad skin. I know what a teenager is. Did you like working there? I did. There was a girl I was sort of dating who worked there with me. Mom? No, this was before I met her. 
just a girl. I ran the kitchen part, and she ran the drive through <laughs> We kissed in the freezer once. Actually, it had been more than once, and more than a kiss. But I didn't tell Lou that. Gross. I guess. Can I get a large fry at McDonald's? You can't finish a large fry. Bet you I can, he insisted, seeming even more worked up than before. I'll get you a Happy Meal. I don't want a Happy Meal. Those are for babies. I know grown women who eat Happy Meals. Actually, I knew one grown woman who did, and I felt a bit guilty for thinking of her again. Lou wasn't done. I feared he might not even be getting started. I bet you five dollars I can eat a large french fry. You don't have five dollars. Do too. Then buy your own funnel cake. He opened his mouth to respond, then realized I had him. It must have stung to be trumped like that, because for almost a full blessed minute, he fell silent. I wondered how often I would see Lou once the divorce was finalized. If I lost my job, I might have to move out of my tiny apartment in Provo. It was possible I wouldn't even stay in Utah. I might end up being like my mom, who only saw the boy on holidays or when Tracy and I went on adults-only vacations. Ah, oh, Mom. I'll buy you the cake if you'll do something for me. Okay, he said, agreeing before he heard my proposition. Can you write your grandma a letter? Tell her how you're doing, about your soccer games, how you're enjoying the summer. Maybe mention that show you like. What's wrong with Grandma? Huh? Oh, should I tell him? Should I lie to him? Should I be like my parents had been and just say, I'll tell you later? Being a father was a real pain. I, I talked to her the other day. She misses you. You know how grandmas are. They get lonely. Okay. I squatted down next to him. Lou, can you promise me you'll write her a letter? Sure. You can tell her about what we did today. He rolled his eyes. I'll write it, okay? Okay. Funnel cakes, apparently, were made of colored paste. Lewis ate two bites and silently handed it over to me. He was pouting now. That good, huh? I tasted it. And yeah, it was bad. One of those oversweetened artificial concoctions so packed with preservatives that it wouldn't go bad until Judgment Day. Not exactly a steal at three dollars apiece. Three-fourths a funnel cake quickly found its way to a garbage can. It looked at home there. I stretched. It was only three o'clock, but my legs were really starting to ache from so much standing. Though I was probably asking for a rib poking, I told Lou, Okay, kiddo, pick one more ride, and then we'll call it a day. He took a sharp breath, and I thought, That's, That's it. it. If he whines, we're leaving right now. Maybe Lou is a... Maybe Lou is a mind reader, but he seemed to change his tune as soon as that thought left my synapses. He let the air out in a quiet sigh and asked, Can we still go to McDonald's? Sure. He craned his neck around, looking in every direction, standing on his toes as if it would help him see better. 
It occurred to me that just yesterday I could carry him on my shoulders for hours, at the zoo, the mall, or Seven Peaks, without getting tired. Now I'd probably end up breathing heavy, just piggybacking him to the car. Soon he wouldn't need to be lifted. He'd be my height before I knew it. Okay, Lou said. Okay what? I found what I want to go on. He pointed past the little kid rides, beyond the midway, to a big blocky building on the outskirts of the carnival. It was one of those mechanized carny spook houses. Are you sure that's your pick? Uh-huh, he said, sounding pretty confident. I felt sorry for the boy, because I knew how stupid these spook houses invariably were. I had gone in one or two in my day, and had exited feeling neither chilled nor thrilled. But Lou started toward the ride, excitement radiating from him like a sunburn. Like the funnel cake, some lessons need to be learned the hard way. We made our way through the thinning crowds, and I got a better look at his choice. Dr. Spooky's House of Horrors, the front of the building announced. The name had been hand-painted on, and they almost hadn't made it, as the ORS of Horrors was scrunched at the side of the wall. Below that was an amateurish mural depicting a raging killer tree, vampire bats, a full moon, dark clouds, and a screaming woman with massive breasts and protruding nipples. Look away, son, I said, then found myself chuckling. That's what my own father had said when we'd seen movie sex scenes back in the 70s. A tinny, badly amplified scream came from tinny, badly maintained speakers all around the attraction. I could hear the sounds of a storm, punctuated with occasional thunderclaps, playing within. Surprisingly, there was a line of people waiting to get into this one, too. Evidently, there are always folks in need of an education. Funnel cakes for everyone, I said, joining the end of the line. The screaming sound effect came again, followed by malevolent laughter. A moment later, the exact same sounds came again. A very short-looped recording. I pitied the operator who had to stand outside Dr. Spooky's, being bombarded by that all day. He ought to earn pro-athlete wages. "'Scared, Dad?' Lou asked in a phony, freaked-out voice. "'Shaking in my boots.' You're not wearing boots. I'm so scared I kicked them off, I said, which wasn't the least bit funny, but made Lou laugh anyway. Nice of him to humor an old codger like that. Five or six places in front of us, a young couple was engaged in a shameless display of groping and fondling. His arm was around her and had crept under the back of her T-shirt. The girl, an astoundingly cute Hispanic of around fifteen, was kissing her boyfriend's neck, and had stuck her hand into one of his front pockets. Somehow I didn't think she was fishing for his car keys. I steered Lou away from his excellent vantage point, hoping he wouldn't notice. Look away, son. I noticed, though, and found myself feeling very old and very alone. And yes, very jealous of this punk kid in the line ahead of me. Not only had I never scored in the times I had come here as a boy—granted, I stopped coming by thirteen or so—but I had been relatively unsuccessful with the ladies until my first year of college. 
despite my ice-cold makeout with Andrea McElmore in the McDonald's freezer on New Year's Eve. Not that any of it mattered now. I hadn't had sex in months, nearly three to be exact, and these two were probably going to come out of the ride with red faces and the girl's shirt on backwards. A family had joined us in line and spoke Spanish as they passed a cigarette back and forth. I wondered if that made them a closer group than Lou, Tracy, and me, then tried to put it out of my mind. I put my hand on Lou's neck. You sure you want to go on this thing? I asked him, getting nervous for some reason. He poked me in the stomach with his finger. You are scared, Dad. Yeah, scared you'll want to go on another ride after this one. I won't, he promised, and moved up as the line progressed. I looked again. The kid and his hottie were tongue-wrestling. Wow. A large, stern-looking woman standing behind them cleared her throat. The girl in question seemed to find this funny. They both moved up, now at the head of the line. The ride attendant, a bald, overweight man of indeterminate age, looked the teenage girl over like he was an appraiser of antiques. You could almost hear his faded jeans stretching. A second later, he looked at her young boyfriend in much the same way. I didn't know what it was, but I suddenly felt like we should be going. Either back to the car, or to another ride. And soon. I tried to push the feeling away. A second later, Lou asked me if I had ever seen a horror movie called The Changing, which was about the ghost of a little boy. I told him I had, when it was new, but it had been called The Changeling, then. Uh-huh. A couple kids at the party were really scared by that, he explained. But it didn't bother me. That was probably true. Lou had always been a brave kid. I remember when we took him to Ghostbusters a couple of years before. He sat on my lap, and I kept asking him if he was afraid. He never got scared, even at the part where the painting took the baby. Again, I got that odd feeling. The kind that comes to you drifting off to sleep when you realize you left the ice cream on the counter or forgot to close the garage door. Only this was worse. It was stronger, more uncomfortable, and much more insistent. You're sure, right? I asked. Sure what? Sure you want to go on this. Lewis made an exasperated sound. It reminded me of his mother, who had made that noise practically every time I had spoken to her over the last year. A patronizing, what is wrong with you sound. Still, I had to warn him. Kiddo, I only ask, because these rides can be boring and stupid. He paused a whole second to think about it. It seemed as long as his supercharged brain could focus on only one thing. You know what's really boring and stupid? He asked. For a moment there, I thought he was going to say, You. I had always considered myself a cool dad. It never occurred to me that... What if Tracy had been filling his head with all sorts of anti-dad nonsense? I wouldn't put it past her, since... Piano lessons, Lou finally answered. Then he laughed. I didn't find it at all funny. But I laughed, too. The sex pot and her fortunate boyfriend disappeared into Dr. Spooky's. 
the group in front of me were loading on now. What do you suppose Dr. Spooky looks like? I asked Lou, curious what his imagination would conjure up. He didn't even think about it. Probably like that guy on Back to the Future, only with a beard. I wondered what Lou's mind was like, how many random ideas bounced around in there, how he saw the world, how he saw me as his father and as a man. Once the divorce went through, I'd see him less and less often. I'd understand him. Maybe never. Our turn came. We gave the bald guy our tickets and got in the little car attached to the track. The safety bar snapped into place, not held on by a lock or cable or even a rubber cord like you'd lock up a bike with. It was not the sturdiest of contraptions. Hey, uh, maybe this isn't such a... I started to say, but the ride lurched forward. Supposedly scary organ music played as the cart inched its way through the entrance to the House of Horrors. As the sunlight was blocked out behind us, I smelt grease and mold. We trundled along in darkness for a few feet. Then an air horn blatted beside the car. More annoying than scary. A moment later, a cardboard spider on a hinge flipped down toward us. Ooh! An obviously phony cobra swayed like a pendulum from a faker's basket. A loud hiss accompanied a blast of warm air. Next, a plastic skeleton was hung in darkness to our right, and a light shone on it as we rode past. "'Look away, Dad!' Lou said, trying to sound adult. I chuckled and waited for the end. This ride could very well be unchanged since my childhood. Then we came around a corner, and a woman's whimpering caught my attention. She was kneeling in a guillotine, her long hair covering her face. As our cart went by, the blade dropped down, slicing through, and the woman's head dropped as well. The whimpering stopped. I blinked. If that was a trick, it was among the... Look, Lou said, pointing. You can see the wire. Before our cart was out of eyeshot, I saw the head reel back on the body as the guillotine blade rose up again. Just as we disappeared around the corner, she started whimpering again. That was quite cool, actually. A ghost passed over us, draped all in white burial robes. Its face was that of a young girl, but with wide, staring eyes. You shall not leave, it hissed. No wires held this prop up, and I could see through it, so I figured it must be a projection of some sort. I angled my neck behind us and above, but I couldn't see where the projection was coming from. What was worse, its eyes seemed to look right at me. Not near me, not beyond me, but right at my eyes. The spirit faded into the darkness, becoming one with it, and I wondered if a projected image could be that advanced. Do you think that was a... a holograph or something? Lou asked. Probably, I said, relaxing. That explained it. But if it was a hologram, what was it doing in a backwoods Utah summer carnival attraction? The ride kept going, through a tunnel of darkness. I expected the next turn to take us back out into the daylight, 
but it turned again into a new room, where a shaggy brown man-animal hunched by a plywood elm tree. It was supposed to be a werewolf, but had to be a guy in a suit by the way it moved. From a tiny speaker, the sound of howling could be heard, but instead of growling at us, the wolf was feasting on something in its arms. From my angle, it looked like a baby. I wondered if my son had seen that gruesome detail. The cart continued on, longer by far than was possible, even in a ride at Lagoon. I heard a sound, a sloppy, wet sound, beneath us. Did I dare look? I dared. All along the wooden floor of the ride was a semi-solid mass, unlike anything real. It was covered with sores and tentacle-like protuberances that almost seemed like tongues. It reached blindly for us, its arms slapping the sides of the ride, leaving sticky, ammonia-smelling residue. Son, uh, I began, hoping for a logical explanation. I don't know how they did that, he whispered next to me. Dad? The little cab did another turn, and we were enclosed on both sides by a big painted facade of 19th-century London. The area on our left was a jutting stage. Help! a female voice cried. Just as we neared it, in tacky period garb, a woman came onto the stage, looking at us. Please help me! she pleaded in an American accent. In some ways, this reassured me, as it was obviously a real woman, just an actress, though she was good, effectively gasping, realistically crying, reaching out to us. Suddenly, someone came out of the shadows, a man dressed as Jack the Ripper, complete with top hat, but with a dead, grinning face. He grabbed the woman by the hair, brandishing a straight razor for us to see, then sliced it theatrically against her throat. Blood sprayed into the air, nearly hitting me. This looked so real, I just didn't know. The woman choked, made a disturbing mewling noise, then dropped to her knees, hard. Immediately, the Ripper tore open her blouse, revealing two pale, perfect breasts. He squeezed one, then nodded at me, his empty eye sockets meeting mine, and raised the straight razor to carve off her breast like a November turkey. Holy Jesus, I whispered, then realized that my little boy was watching this whole thing. I turned to gauge his reaction. What kind of sick... Lou was gone. The seat was empty next to me. Our cart was still moving forward. I looked behind me, to the stage. The ripper stared in my direction, the mutilated woman in his arms, motionless. I called Lou's name. I was answered by the tinny sound of recorded laughter coming from further up the tunnel. But beneath it, very light, I thought I heard a small voice shout, Dad! I sat up. In front of me, shifting gray light flickered from the next attraction. For a moment, the light was blocked out, as if someone had moved in front of it. Lou! I called again. As the ride left London and neared the next display, I started to hear that irritating crackling sound electricity makes in black-and-white movies when the mad scientist runs his experiment or the bad guy gets the chair.
It turned out to be the former, as the cart approached a hokey laboratory set. Instead of a doctor, there was a burly executioner type manning a control box next to a table where a skinny, naked man was laying. The skinny victim had been strapped down, a Frankenstein's monster mask over his head. The sound effect came again, and the skinny man shuddered as electricity raged through his genitals, nipples, and anus. This was impossible. It was some kind of dream or drug-induced hallucination. As the ride passed by the torture set, I heard a muffled voice say, We've got him now. Oh, yeah. I turned back. The executioner guy was looking at me. I'd had enough. I pulled up the harness, and it released with less give than a screen door. The ride's cars were carried along a track with a thick chain. It could seriously mangle my leg if I lost my footing. The same thing had happened to a cousin of mine when we were kids, only on a motorcycle. But I climbed out anyway. No other cars followed mine, and the executioner had made no move to stop me. Instead, he was turned back to the torture device. "'What did you say?' I shouted. In response, the skinny man was shocked again, lights flashing on the equipment. I made my way back to the lab setup. "'Hey!' I shouted at the torturer. He didn't move as I climbed up beside him. I grabbed the big man, and he simply toppled over. It was just a mannequin, and not even a plastic one but a cheapie made of styrofoam. I looked at the skinny man on the table. He wasn't moving, but I could see blood running out the bottom of the monster mask. Briefly, I thought I would be sick. What stopped me was the thought that Lewis could be somewhere like this right now, in pain, screaming, dying. I kept my gorge down and stepped away from the set. I had to get to my son. All of my other problems were non-existent now. I moved down the tunnel, remembering that I'd seen, or thought I'd seen, someone moving up here. Getting closer, I noticed a little alcove set alongside the tracks back the way I'd come. I made my way over to it. There was a passageway leading off in the dark there. Hello? I said, not as loudly as I had intended. Only silence responded. It was quiet all around me. I couldn't hear the movement of the ride anymore, or the electricity of the mad scientist's lab. I entered the dark passage. Lewis, I called. I jumped as the sound of electronic feedback screeched over my head. Above me, there was an old speaker hanging on the wall, like the one outside, broadcasting the fake wind and screams. As I passed under it, it crackled to life. Adultery is a sin, Christopher, a voice within it said, an emotionless voice, like the computer in 2001. As penance, we're taking your son. Guilt rained down on me, soaking me to the bone. Why hadn't I put my foot down when Lewis wanted to go on this shitty ride? Couldn't I have been a parent for once and decided what was better for him? No, I had to be a pal and let him learn a lesson here. And hadn't I been signaled beforehand? Didn't I feel uncomfortable about the spook alley? I had never been one for premonitions or bad feelings. That had been more Tracy's thing. But I had been warned 
hadn't I? And I ignored it. No, I said, to myself, not the speaker, and moved faster into the darkened passage. I ran right into the wall, my nose knocking against its cheap wood hard enough to bring tears to my eyes. Something giggled to the right of me. I turned, my hand on my nose, to see a man just coming around the corner. He was small and fat, dressed in what I thought at first was a bathrobe, but was actually a woman's nightgown. He stood about twenty yards off, his hands clasped like a praying child. Light seeped in through the ceiling above him. But it was artificial light, cold and blue, not sunlight. The fat man's skin was blanched and unhealthy, so pale it looked like rotten fruit. "'Where's my son?' I demanded. A drop of blood dripped from my nose and onto my lip. I wiped it away with the back of my hand. The man ignored my question, just watching me and grinning. It made me uncomfortable to meet his gaze. His eyes looked pink. "'Hello, Christopher,' he said. How do you know my name? Nobody called me Christopher except for my mother, scolding me, and old Miss Judd in elementary school. That boy of yours is going to be right at home here, eventually. What? He grinned again. It was a wet grin. We'll keep him in our freak show. Carnivals don't have freak shows anymore, I heard myself say, though I didn't know why I did. The fat man tittered, still smiling. All carnivals do, Christopher, though the public might not get to see them. It's the only place we feel at home. Another drop of blood trickled from my nose. I sniffled, tasting copper in my teeth. We don't want you, though, he said, grimacing. You don't fit in. Neither does Lewis. Oh, we'll make him fit, the fat man said, and giggled again. This was somebody who always got away with his acts and never had to compromise his wants. No. I saw shadows behind him, just around the corner. They moved with unnatural fluidity, like monkeys or cartoon figures. I didn't know what they were, and I didn't want to know. The fat man unclenched his hands. Just leave here the way you came, and we'll let you live. It's a choice we don't give everyone, one you certainly don't deserve. No, I said again. He shrugged. Very well. Makes no difference to me. The shapes just around the corner seemed to move closer, to gain solidity. Lou! I shouted, in case he was with them. Another drop of blood wanted to emerge from my nose, but I sniffed it back. And a small, scared voice called out behind me, Dad? I whirled. It was back the way I'd come, where all was dark. I turned again to the fat man. In that moment, I saw a look of upset frustration on his face. He quickly replaced it with smug authority. You don't have him, I said to him. Then, to the passage behind me, I shouted, I'm coming, Lou! My voice echoed off the walls, but my son did not respond.
The man's plump hands were squeezing into fists at his sides. Behind him, more unnatural shapes crept, just unseen. Christopher, he began. I didn't let him finish. I ran into the darkness at my back, my hands outstretched before me. Lou! I called again. I could only hear my own footfalls clomp, clomp, clomping through the tunnels, and then I heard my boy's voice again. This time, it was right beside me. I stopped. Lou! It had sounded low to the ground. I dropped to my knees. There was a space beside the tunnel, just a small alcove. It might have been there to hide lighting or electronic equipment. It might have been there by structural flaw. It was dark inside, just a blacker shadow among the darkness of the passage. I guessed my son had crawled inside it. I'm here, I said, peering into it. Are you okay? The boy didn't answer. I stilled myself completely and thought I heard him breathing back there. I wasn't about to reach into the dark for him, though. Lou? Are you hiding in there? I heard the slightest of movements in the crawl space. It was farther back than I had guessed. Lewis! I heard a soft intake of air. It's me, I said. We've got to go. Don't hurt me, a child's voice said. It was like a punch to the heart to hear the smallness of it, the helplessness. Lewis, I said, my own voice betraying my fear. Lewis, it's me. Nobody's going to hurt you. I want my mom, he said. At that moment, I sort of did too. It's me, Lou, I said. It's Dad. No, it isn't. It is. I heard sniffling. Uh-uh. I didn't know what to say. Things were probably messing with his head in here, like they were with my own. How did you get out of the car, Lou? I asked, though it wasn't really important. Leave me alone, he cried, strong enough that I recoiled. I looked over my shoulder, seeing no one. Yet. I wiped my sweaty palms on my jeans. I'm not going to go away, Lou. I'm your father, and I'm here to look out for you. It sounded a bit absurd coming from me. I don't think I had ever referred to myself as someone's father before. It seemed like an old-fashioned phrase. I'm your dad, I clarified. I heard the sniffling again. I couldn't see him in there but I thought he might be considering it. I... I promise you, it's me. When? He began to say something, but stopped. When what? When is my birthday, then? December 29th, I said at once. I had always struggled to remember Tracy's birthday. It was the 14th of March, but sometimes I remembered it as the 16th for some reason. But Lou's was easy. I was there when you were born. You were more than a week overdue. A huffling sound came from back at the tunnel, like a dog choking on a chicken bone. What? What's my favorite color? Lou asked. I didn't know. I thought it might be blue, but I wasn't sure. 
What kind of father doesn't know his own kid's favorite color? I... I remembered then, when we went car shopping a couple of years before. Tracy had been all set to come, but she'd gotten hurt. Doing what? Oh, she had sprained her ankle jogging at the park, and just the two of us had gone. I had been looking at a maroon Camry, but Lou had convinced me to go for green. Because it was his favorite color. Green, I said. Lewis was very quiet there in the dark. Time was fleeting. Lou? Took you a long time, he said. I would have grumbled at that, but there were more pressing matters at hand. Son, it's me. It's really me. I promise. Monsters can promise. There's n I stopped myself. Holy shit, I was about to tell him there was no such thing as monsters. After what we'd just seen. Kiddo, it really is me. Take a look. No. Hey, I said, keeping my voice as soft as I could to reassure him. But now I was starting to think about what might be creeping up behind me. What else was looking for my boy? You've got to trust me, okay? Come out. Hey. I know you're afraid, I said, and wanted to let him know that I was, too. But that wasn't the right choice. I had to be Dad. I had to show him there was nothing under the bed. I won't let anything happen to you. Nothing can touch you when you're with me. Nothing? Nope. Two. I saw a couple bare legs move there in the dark. He must have pulled them in and was grabbing them. So nothing else could. Do you promise? I wasn't sure I could make that promise. For all I knew, some scarecrow thing was hunting for us right now, sharpened shovel in hand. But I had no choice. I promise, son. Just come out. He shifted again in the dark, and this time I saw his big, wet eyes, his little face looking up at me. Do I have to take piano lessons? I wasn't sure if that was a trick question or if he was serious. Son, that's not up to me. Your mother thinks it will teach you patience or discipline or poise or something. But I promise you this. I'll get your back. Try and talk her into letting you quit. Okay? He was quiet for a moment. I tried to see his face again. Okay. I put my hand out, and he all but leapt into my arms. I held him, smelling his slightly earthy hair and child sweat against me. He didn't seem so big anymore, or so heavy. I carried him back up the tunnel, the illumination of the ride getting brighter as I walked. Right as I reached the main corridor, I heard a voice whisper in my ear behind me, Christopher! I could feel hot, somehow dirty breath on the back of my neck, and sense a presence there. The boy tensed in my arms, but I didn't turn to look. I just kept walking, sure I would be tackled or stabbed, or simply groped by something rancid and wet. Suddenly, there was white light up ahead. I knew I was close to where I'd gotten off the ride, 
and this was the electrical currents from Frankenstein's work table. Any second now, I'd be back there, where that not-quite-alive mannequin stood and the not-quite-dead body reclined. But I was wrong. It was the end of the tracks, where the big swinging doors were decorated with the world's lamest-looking skull. The white light spilling through was summer sunlight. Hey! I heard sharply behind me and jumped. It was a pair of preteen boys sitting together in their own Dr. Spooky's car. Get out of the way, one said, and I quickly moved out of their flight path. The rickety little ride moved past, and one of the boys asked, Is he okay? Which I assumed was regarding Lewis. I ignored the question and followed them along the tracks to the exit. The front of the car struck the wood, where dented sheet metal had been nailed or welded, and the double doors burst open, letting in carnival sounds and bright August sunshine. I quickly slipped through them before they could shut on us, stepping off the tracks next to the two disembarking boys. "'What the hell are you doing?' the carney beside the entrance bawled. He stepped away from the handful of people in line and started toward us. "'Did you get out of your seat in there?' I shot him the coldest don't-mess-with-me look I could, and said two words I shouldn't have used in front of my son. No other two words would have cut it, though. Whether I was actually intimidating, or he was afraid of leaving the entrance unmanned, the bald man went back to tearing tickets and checking out underage girls. I was glad, but more glad to be out of that godforsaken carnival ride, and more glad yet to have my son in my arms, moving among the happy carnival-goers. "'You were right about that ride, Dad,' the boy said quietly. I nodded and kissed Lou's mop of hair, still heading toward the nearest street exit. Sure, my life was hard and filled with problems, but what I had seen inside that insane carnival ride made those things seem not so bad. I could move on after my divorce. All parents die. I'd find another job if I lost mine. As long as I was there for my boy, in his life, trying to influence him for good as best I could. Well, then I could bear whatever the future threw at me. I could live with that. The End Okay, so that was Father's Day in August, and, uh, you know, I could run that in June when Father's Day is here in America, or I could run it in August when August is here in America. It's amazing, if you're Gino Moretto listening to this on the other side of the world, then August is in February for you. I, it's weird how that works. So... Uh, what do I want to talk about? Okay, first thing I wanted to say, though, is, uh, yes, this is a very long story. But I was surprised when I looked over the document the other day that it used to be much longer. I had cut out a couple of pages of the story. There was a part where the boy looks over and he sees Jimmy from Round and Round throwing up in the garbage can. And he points it out to his dad, and the dad says, you know, I get this way when I ride some of these rides. There was a bit with the ex-wife, or soon-to-be ex-wife, 
that was gone. And there was a, a little bit more about the sons bouncing around from topic to topic. Him, him being super hyperactive or ADHD or whatever you want to call it. Um, this story, unlike Round and Round, is entirely fictional. Oh, okay. That's 99% true. I went to a, a haunted house when I was probably a teenager, let's say 13 or 14. My mom took me and my best friend and another guy named Scott from school and we went to this haunted house and they you know most of them are just dark tunnels where people jump out and make a noise or there's scary music and an interesting set piece and then somebody jumps out and makes a scary noise but this one actually had like a couple of moments where you go into a room and there would be a little performance for you and i remember there being one where there was a grown woman and she was dressed as a little girl and she was talking to her dolls and the dolls were all over the room. There were like dolls hanging from the ceiling and they were all like, you know, very realistic, creepy dolls. And then she revealed that she had a, like instead of a baby doll in her arms, it was, she showed it to us and it was like a person's severed torso with fake blood on it and then a real rat like somebody's pet rat but was crawling on the chest and she showed that to us and you know if you were somebody that was freaked out by rats that would be disturbing and then there was a place where there was going to be an execution and there was a woman and she was being placed at a guillotine and she was begging for help begging the people us that were spectating for help saying, you know, that I didn't do anything wrong. Please don't let them do this to me. And, and, you know, there was like a, a town crier or whatever is just like, be silent woman. You have been found guilty and your head will be stricken from your body. One, two, three. And the blade came down. And as the blade came down, I guess maybe her body went through a trap door or something like that and her head rolled off in front of us. It was a really, really effective illusion. So effective that here we are 30 years later, and I, I see it in my head, and I still don't know how the effect was pulled off. That stayed with me for a long, long time of just like, how did they do that? And I think Scott said that he saw that, you know, she went one way and a fake head, which of course we were supposed to watch, went the other way. And we all looked at the fake head, but none of us looked at her to see that she was all right. And I, and so I just, in my mind, I believed that all these years that, okay, it was trick. They got you to look at the head, which rolled and the head was a phony one, but I still don't know how they did, did it. And I think at the time as a kid, I thought about that of, you know, you pretend to kill someone and we all think that it's a show, but it's not. And who would know? Andy in Round and Round talks about there being a hanged body in a, a carnival spook house and that everybody assumed it was just a prop. But 
but it was somebody who had hanged themselves in their body and just hung there for the whole summer until the you know the, there started to be smell or something like that. And that's a an actual urban legend that I remember hearing about. So anyway, I think I think that's about it. Maybe there was one other little moment in there uh, that was from real life, but because this was much more of a horror story than, well, especially, especially round and round, there wasn't that much to pull from from my own life. Rain is hissing down. I'm slowing and slowing and slowing uh, on the road. It just seems super dangerous. So, as I said before the story, I don't remember this one nearly as much as I remembered Try Your Luck and Round and Round. Those I wrote half of a decade before this story, but all of these stories are from a long time ago already. Um, it is too long, as I said before. It used to be longer, and it impresses me that I would have been willing to cut out as much as I did. But I don't care so much about when stories are long. They just are the length that they are for me now, and then I go on to the next story. But in those days, every story that I reached the end of was special. Uh, it was a unique snowflake, and who knew how many more there would be. And so, yes, I would I would look at them, I would polish them, I would uh, make notes. I would. I, what I used to do in those days is I would print them out and take them with me when I went to work or when I went to a, a movie or when I would go work as an extra. And when I had some time on my hands, I would get this story out and go through it with the red pen. And I think that that is beneficial. The impetus behind the story was that... I think Dr. Spookies is mentioned in Try Your Luck, but I don't know because I haven't read that in years. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of Dr. Spookies referenced in Round and Round. And so in the back of my mind, I thought, well, I could write another story that shows what would have happened had Jimmy and Andy gone to Dr. Spookies. And eventually it became, you know, a guy and, and his kid. But I liked the idea that the man had been unfaithful to his wife and that the people or beings inside this haunted house knew that. And it was, it was leverage for them or it was, you know, they, they said, you've done this thing, this, the, you've committed this sin, we're going to punish you for it. Uh, we're going to punish you by taking your child. And that was what this story was going to be about. I... I don't know that that is the final result that much. There's still that element, but it's a lot more about a man who is, he's at a crossroads and he doesn't know what's going to happen. And, and he sees that his son is changing, his life is changing, his mom is dying. And I really tried to explore that. And, and to me, that was kind of unique. I, I wrote a number of stories about dads during this same stretch. I wrote Library Week. I don't know. It, maybe Library Week was in answer to this. One story that I wrote, the, the kids were really, really great. 
like the perfect kids. And I wrote Library Week as a reaction to that. It's like, what if, you know, you had the worst son possible? I don't know. Okay, so I think that's it. I think we're just going to have a short episode here. I don't have that much to say about this story. It's, I bet if we had a classroom of like fourth graders, they could sum it up eloquently. But um, you don't know if it's going to be a good story or a bad story while you're writing it. And for me, you know, if I ever get the inkling that this is not a good story, then a lot of times I will just abandon the story. I'll stop writing it halfway through. And a lot of times I never pick those up again. I never finish. And I think it's probably better if it's a bad story that I finished than a story that would have been great, but I never finished it. And your mileage may vary on that as far as that opinion going. But I uh, sometimes I think about that carnival and I'm sure back in the day when I wrote those first two stories, I thought maybe I would write a whole bunch of stories that take place there. But I don't don't have any ideas for stories. I just I, I like the idea of you know going to a carnival where weird stuff happens. I mean obviously that is fertile ground for storytelling. But um yeah. I'm just going to let you go. Sorry, I, I'm i not the best host in this episode. I don't have the most insight or anything right here. Uh, I just, that's it. I, I hope you liked the story anyway. And we'll see how long it takes me to do one for Try Your Luck. I remember Try Your Luck being problematic because the premise, there was one aspect of the premise that was just so, so absurd that I wondered if if it would worked at all or if people would just roll their eyes. But that is a discussion for another time. Thank you for listening. As always, if you'd like to support me over on Patreon, I do have an account there and every dollar is appreciated. And uh, if you can't support me that way, feel free to, you know, Go on to Spotify or what is it? Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Stitcher and say that you like the show. The show is earnest. I don't know. If, if earnest is the best compliment you can give it, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. But um, that's it. Thank you. Good night. Thanks to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for his music. Ah, Creative Commons, 3.0 license. I barely knew thee. I remember how your hair would shine in the moonlight, how the hint of your smile would make my stomach start up a spin cycle, and how free you were, free to listen to, download, and share. But you couldn't be tied down, couldn't be claimed as somebody's property, couldn't be charged for, couldn't be altered. 
I never knew what a good thing I had in you. Something so attributable. Something with no derivatives. Something to share and share alike. I never knew that good thing until it was done. Like this podcast. I'm gonna kick you, kick you in the taint. Kick you, kick you right in the taint. I'm gonna kick you in the taint today. Right in the taint again. Big was right. What if the turtle's dead? The boy's face fell. What? I'm gonna say fat boy. Sorry. Sorry, I really have to go to the bathroom. So you get to listen to me doing that. Why am I saying that? I'm going to cut it out. Because we'll never be wrong. Together we can take it to the end of the line. Your love is like a shadow of me all of the time. Forever's going to start tonight. Everyone knew that his father was a superb short celt. Everyone knew that his father was a superb short celt. Everyone knew that his father was a superb sword celt. Forever's gonna start to Once upon a time I was falling in love But now I'm only falling apart Somehow I didn't think she was fishing for his car keys I steered Lou away (laughs) There's nothing I can do It's a total eclipse of the heart